Welcome to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm Pete Raby, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Atul Bagger, the CFO at JLL Technologies, one of the leading software and service providers for the real estate industry. Having successfully negotiated and structured multiple M&A deals, totaling over $600 million, today we're going to discuss how to master mergers, acquisitions, and fundraising from a CFO's perspective. Thank you for joining me today, Atul. From an analyst perspective to the CFO role, was that a role that you were always aiming for? Was it something where you thought this is likely to be where ended up or has it kind of been a bit of a different path? It's a great question. I consider myself a builder. I really enjoy working in investment. You meet some of the sharpest people there. There's always something going on in the companies that you cover. So always on the edge. And of course, you know, you're helping your clients, your investors make a lot of money. And in the process, you make good money. Being in the financial services after a long time, when you look back and you say, okay, what did I do last five years? It feels like, you know, mostly I pushed papers. I have not built anything. I've seen companies that have come up and became large businesses. So I think that that builder inside of me, that was the, the, the craving that made me make a jump from financial services to part of businesses where we are building something. And so from an M&A perspective, Atta, what would you say that, that you know, there's, there's been a good few years of experience in this different space now. What would you say that some of the starkest realizations or core principles to M&A being done well so far? I've had good fortune of being in a number of acquisitions. Many of these acquisitions have gone well and some have not. If you look at the history of acquisitions all over, you will see that a majority of acquisitions do not work very well. And if you start analyzing why things have worked or why things have not worked, I think you start to see some pattern there. The big theme that comes out is, first and foremost, to get the acquisition done well, both the acquirer and the, and the target company, you need to have very clarity of why are you doing this? What value you're, you're going to create by this acquisition? Can one plus one be more than two? Or is it going to be just two? And m- many times you see it, it happens to be less than two. So having clarity on objectives, how you're going to create value for the customers, for the employees, that's super important. A big part of this also goes back to the structure. If you're not clear on the the objective, why you're acquiring the company, is it the team? Are you trying to acquire an IP? Are you trying to acquire assets? Are you trying to acquire uh, revenue growth? Your structure is going to be different. And if you have not structured the deal well, and you have not been able to assimilate the new company in your existing fold. There is going to be some always some disconnect. And you see that happen more often than not. The big companies will acquire a small, nimble company. The founders will come on board. And very soon, they'll start feeling hamstrung. And then within a year or two, the acquisitions start to fall apart. So having a good clarity on why you're acquiring the company, how you're going to add value, and then structuring the deal in a way that you're incentivizing and providing the right environment for the founders, for the new team to thrive on. That becomes a very important factor in success of m Is it too simple to say that when things don't go well, it's because there wasn't a robust or clearly thought out plan in the early phase of things? Is it more complicated than that? Can it often be a case where you had a good plan, but you wandered away from it? It'd be really interesting to hear of, successful versus not successful, where that difference is? So a lot of times, acquisitions that have gone well, there has been a very well thought of plan. We know exactly how you're going to create values. You've identified value creation vectors. You know exactly how you're going to measure that. You have identified the metrics that you're going to use to measure it. And it's not just the output metrics, it's also the input metrics. 
And then there is a very close alignment between the CEO, the, the target company, the acquirer, and the target both. And everybody is working towards the same plan. A lot of times when things have not gone well, is you, you had a plan. You thought about the value creation factor and you start working on this. And within a month or three months or six months, you realize this is not working. And suddenly you're trying to change it because you want to fit the short-term uh, headwinds. You have already set the expectations with investors. And when that starts to happen, you will see maybe you have not really, the, the value creation vectors that you chose, those were not very well thought of. And as, as that is not going well, you're trying to change direction midway. And this way, you, you're demotivating the founders, the new companies that you new company that you acquired, and things start to go south. So a lot of this also has to do with this expectations that you're setting with with employees, with the founders, with your investors. That all makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the things that I was I realized a question that jumped out from that is. What, therefore, is the best position to approach m a Because I think COVID was a great example, but it's, that was genuinely a time where a lot of people had to make very reactive, fear-based decisions on, wow, this has been thrown at us, off we go. m a by its nature, won't be born out of the same type of origins. Do companies sometimes approach m a from the wrong standpoint? Is there an ideal place that companies should be thinking about m a from? One of the companies that I work with, Zynga, which is now part of Electronic Arts, a social game company that came and disrupted the whole gaming business. It was one of the fastest growing companies at that time in Kleiner's portfolio. It very quickly went to a billion dollar and very big dominance in the web game business. And around 2007, 2008, they realized that the business is their business is going to get disrupted with mobile games. Apple iPhone just launched. The games on Apple uh, iPhone and Android phone started to become more mainstream. And at that time, we realized there is a gap in our portfolio, which is the company is super strong on the website, but needs some DNA for mobile games. Fitting the old web games into the new mobile model does not work. So we were very clear that we wanted to buy a mobile company, and this is going to help us drive the next vector of growth. And an acquisition, when you're going with that clarity of mind, what you're trying to achieve in this acquisition, that acquisition works very well. Because you know exactly what you're going for. You're looking for the best talent, best-in-class team, best-in-class products, and you, you give them as much flexibility and independence as you can. Let them work, and after that, you start integrating that company overall uh, structure. Companies that do not work very well is, uh, without naming uh, the companies, one of the acquisitions was a token acquisition. We bought a company with the hope that we are trying to create a new product for the business that we are trying to establish. The expectations that we had set with investors, the expectations we had set with our board were pretty aggressive. And like any new product development, the first attempt on on building a product is not always successful. You need multiple go at this. And very soon we realized it is going to take longer than we thought. But the structure of the deal was such that was not giving enough leeway to the founder to continue creating, innovating on the product, meaning the value creation, personal value creation was done to continue to enhance the product. And so there was a frustration between the structure that we had offered to the, to the founder and the reality of what was going on. And that was, again, one of those acquisitions that did not go very well. 
Is that because I was I was really looking forward to having a conversation around the M&A side, but then also talking about fundraising, because as, as has been so widely commented on the last couple of years, the investment in technology as a sector has been absolutely massive. And it, one of the things that I've spoken with other people that have gone through funding about is that there's definitely such a thing as a, a good investment partner and a not so good investment partner. They might write the big checks, but then there are some, you know, whatever way you do it, they're going to be very demanding versus roots of doing it where they go, ah, we understand the long-term plan here. This is We're going to accept a bit of failure and learning along with the journey. Whereas others that say, now nah, we've got some hard deadlines here we've got to hit and there's, there's no missing them. Are there some similarities there between M&A being done the right way and investment being done the right way from your experience at all? If you're looking for strategic funding, if you're looking at the opportunities there, you have to be very, very clear. What are you bringing on the table for that investor? Why would they care about the product that you're offering? And then also be very clear. How is that investor going to help you drive growth? Maybe they are going to give you access to new markets. Maybe they have the GTM channel, the go-to-market channel that you want to leverage. Maybe they have the existing client base that you want to leverage. Maybe there is some know-how that you need from them. But having that clarity is super important. And I think sometimes the companies that have done well, they will do their own research. They have looked at their investors' past investments. They have talked to the companies that uh, the investors have invested in or partnered with, what has gone well with them, what has what did not work. They have talked to the customers. They will go and ask the investor right there, what exactly, why should we be interested in you and why are you interested in us? And as a fundraiser, the only thing you care about is the valuation. That may not be the smartest thing to do. Getting a higher valuation does not mean you're getting a partner who is going to be with you for a long term. So I think having a very clear objectives and clear metrics on how you're going to measure each other, that becomes super important. And yes, valuation is important, but that should not be the primary key for the for, for fundraising. It would be really good to to hear about your your thoughts that time plays in the process, be it M&A or investment as well. Because what it sounds like is that to do something well, you're going to want to scope out the market. You're going to want to see competitors, who's invested, what kind of what their portfolio is. So you get the right partner, be it M&A or be it investment ready. Would you say that there's been some learns in relation to time over the years of how early you've started a process versus what you might have done without that experience? I've seen the acquisitions and the investment that have gone really well. These are some of the relationships that you have built over the long term. And again, one of the companies that, that I was involved with, we had relations with them. We knew the founder. We knew the team for a very, very long time. And we worked together. And at some point of time, we realized there is a lot of synergy between what they are trying to do and what we are trying to do. And if we get together, the value creation is going to be significantly more than what we are trying to do by ourselves. So yes, I think I think getting to know each other better and really understanding the what you bring on the table is a huge help. And time is is absolutely that 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 plays a big role. Is there a time in a business's life cycle? And of course, it's going to depend on so many factors. But is there a time where you think such things as M and A are too early to think about at all? Is is there a time where because you're absolutely right, there'll be some things that we would do very well as a business that. Another business down the road, they'll do something else completely you know, so much better. Have you seen businesses try and do this too early? I think as a, as a buyer, we are looking at companies at all stages. There are times when you're 
looking for token acquisitions, all you need is, hey, I need a strong team who can come and fill this product gap. I know there is a there is a vacuum on this side of my product portfolio, and I need a team who has done something. And as long as I get the right chemistry, I want to bring the team in. And that could be a very early stage. And you bring the team on, and essentially, it's it's almost like an aqua hire. There could be a time when you're looking at, hey, I have things. The only thing I need right now is I need some IPs there. And that could be as simple as buying the asset purchase of a company. Or there could be a time when you are looking for the revenue growth. You're looking to drive market share growth by combining with something which is either giving you a new market, a new geo, new segment of customers. And that is going to be much more of a mid to large scale acquisitions. So I think I think the acquisitions. I don't. I'm I'm not sure if the if if I can say that the aqua hires or token acquisitions or the large acquisitions. If one works well than the other, I think I've seen examples on both sides for all sizes of acquisitions. And, and and in relation to your role in the last eighteen months since you've been at JLL Technologies at all, what have been the the biggest fresh challenges that you faced during that time? Have there been one or two that stand out? I mean, we've been talking about m we've been talking about investment so far, but, you know, it's been a new role with a very new type of business, as you say. Have there been one or two standout challenges uh, up to this point? Yeah, so this is a company we are growing at a very fast pace. The technology revenue, you can see our financials. If you look at the last few quarters, you'll see that this business has been growing at 40% plus year, year over year. So the challenges in this business is always about, you know, how do you allocate capital in the right way? You can grow organic means. You have uh, existing product portfolio. You can continue to invest in this. And you have uh, inorganic growth. You can look at the acquisitions. How do you fill the gap? That's a big piece of what we are trying to do here. Last year, uh, we made uh, we made a big bet. We bought a company called Building Engine. It was an acquisition of about $300 million. The other piece is within GLL uh, Technologies, we have three separate businesses. So there is one business that we report externally, which is GLL Technologies. This is you know services, software that we sell to real estate industries. We also have a VC fund that we manage. Total, in, uh, we have we manage now about roughly about five hundred million million dollar of assets within within this portfolio. And the third piece is we are also building software to help GLL, the core business, either drive faster revenue growth or be more efficient. So a lot of time is a, is about how do you balance the investments that you're making in, in, in different areas? How do you make sure that you're getting the discipline growth? There is always a balance between growing fast versus how do you manage that with your profitability? So those are all the challenges that you have to, you have to straddle with. I mean, that... <laughs> That sounds like a, a lot on the plate. Um, th- th- you mentioned and alluded to one of the tranches of the JLL Technologies, Bo, is the fact that there's a fund there. And I know that in your experience that there's been a good amount of, of VC-related experience. And part of our uh, audience that listens in, they uh, have maybe yet to go through funding um, or they're at startup phase looking to scale. They've got an idea. They they know they've got something that they want to build and build and, 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 and therefore they're looking to secure funding or partnerships with larger companies for the first time. Would there be any um, advice that you could give to those startups looking to begin on that journey? I have huge respect for the entrepreneurs, people who, who, who go big, building things. Personally, I have, I've had three startups and uh, two of those were failures. So 
not as successful as as uh, other entrepreneurs. So it takes a lot to to jump in and get your hands dirty and, and building things. I think my advice is 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 uh, not an earth shattering something different. I think it's everything starts with your customer. You need to know your customer better than anyone else. You need to understand what their demands are. Customers, their needs are changing every day. What what you delivered yesterday, the value that you created for them yesterday is not good enough anymore. So how are you going to continue to improve the value that you're giving to customers? So having that in mind is is what differentiate a, a good versus a great entrepreneur. A lot of times you see people chasing either the new fad, whether it's new technology, new uh, tech stack, or whatever the new thing that's going on in, in, in the space, you're trying to chase that. And oftentimes you see that that does not work because competitive strategies are going to change. Technology is going to evolve. What is not going to change is the fundamental truth about your customers' needs. So as long as you know what exactly how you're going to add value to your customers and relentlessly focus on that, I think that's that's the thing that makes an entrepreneur stand apart from others. Yeah, it's very enlightening at all. And I think I call these things, yeah, some bits that I've I've got no doubt a few people who think it will be a quite a thought provoker that one. So I uh, appreciate you sharing that. And, and you touched upon it there. Looking ahead to the next few years, and let's be honest, it's a very unique time economically right now, very unique indeed. What financial trends or disruptions do you see on the horizon? And how do you make sure that you're as best prepared for them as you can be? I think it's always very hard to predict the future. We can have a plan based on what we know now, but at the same time, be nimble enough to fail fast. I think the, the paradox of success is it's always built on failures, absence of failures. Every time you fail, you learn. And as long as you're, you're willing to do that, you're willing to celebrate the failures you've had and learn from that and build on top of that. Uh, I think that makes the processes, that makes your business, that makes your, your team stronger. In terms of the challenges, the big challenges I see, I think clearly last uh, six months, we have been in an environment, we see inflation rates, interest rates rising. And, and uh, of course, we've seen in the last six months, tech companies going through a big change from a high growth cycle hiring a lot of people to you've seen number of layoffs coming across the board from different companies all sizes this is a cycle i've seen this cycle happen multiple times i'm sure you've seen it a number of times and we are going to get over this when we are going to get over this is anybody's guess is it going to be the middle of 2023 is this going to be a long run recession personally i think we are seeing some green shoots I think things have started to become stable. You see some good data coming from the macro environment. So I'm optimistic that tide start to turn sometime towards the second half of the year. This is a time for companies to step back and really give a hard look to the investment you're making. This is a time when companies come out much stronger because now you've gone back, you have a chance to look at your investments, you have a chance to look at where and how you're going to optimize every investment you're making. And when you come out on the other side, you are way much stronger to give the same value, deliver more value to your customers. As you say, having been through many cycles since uh, after 9-11 and the dot-com bubble burst back in the early 2000s, markets look like different things in the different ways, but there's always success stories that come from it. It'll often require a bit of a sharpening of the tools to make sure you're doing things as well as you can be and you're running a, a good a good business. But ultimately, um, as you say, if you can run a and, and and do okay during uh, the, the tougher times. And on the other side of it, you're certainly going to be uh, enjoying the upside, shall we say. So I think there's some uh, 
think there's some good words of wisdom there, Atto. Absolutely. Now, I- I'm going to ask you a tough question. I'm also a big and avid reader. Love doing it. I think if I was asked this question, it'd be a tough one. But ultimately, if there was only one book that you could pick that you've taken some of the most long-lasting learns from, what would that one book be? Oh, Jesus. One book. That's hard, Peter. I would say I have to go with more than one, I guess. I think some of the books, my favorite books, uh, I would say Made in Japan, Akiyomorita, that was amazing book uh, that I read, Perseverance and and. And just the frugality and how you go about building things, the, the, the drive and, and the passion and the belief in yourself. Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. I think that's, that's such a wonderful insight on how we think, the cognitive dissonance, why we make mistakes. And just opening up your mind and, and making you aware of your own follies. And uh, I think I'll be amiss to say uh, Sapiens is, again, one of my favorite books by Yuval Harari. Just just going through the history of humankind, how we evolved. I can add four more, but I'll stop here. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. And it's, it's certainly a couple of those that I uh, that I wasn't aware of um, at all. So I'll be ch- I'll be checking those out because we've had, we spent a lot of the time talking about M and A. We talk a lot about uh, going through investment as well. If there'd be one learn that you'd want our listeners to take away when it comes to that vital area of business growth, is there one big learn that you'd want people to take away? I think the one biggest thing is is setting expectations, being very clear what you can achieve. And I think a lot of times I see when we start getting into that mode of uh, whether it's a fundraise or acquisition or launching a new project, new product, there is always this optimism that we're going to go and crush, which is great. You know, this is what the CEOs are supposed to do. This is what the entrepreneurs are for. As finance, that's our job. We get this fun job to temper their expectations and and be more of not a naysayer, but be more pragmatic. And I think that setting those expectations right, I cannot stress how important that is for yourself, for your investors, for your employees, for all the stakeholders. And a lot of times we get in the cycle, we have set the expectations, which are way too aggressive to begin with. And when you cannot meet those expectations, your investors are not happy, your employees are demotivated, and you go in a different cycle. So I would say the one advice will be making sure you, you really think through everything that can go wrong and set the expectations in the right. That relationship between the CEO and the CFO, is it yin and yang? Is it, <laughs> is it, is it, the, is it the gas pedal versus the brake pedal? Like, how, how would you describe an effective relationship? I think effective relationship is, uh, I think there was a study, I can't remember. I, 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 I remember reading about a study they did on where this has worked well. And they looked at all the learning scripts of CEOs and CFOs and the words that they've spoken, I think. And they found that the most value creation was when there was a good balance between the optimism and being pragmatic. CEOs by nature, they are optimists. They are going to be setting their uh, sight high and they are much more willing to take risks. As CFO, we need to make sure that we win in and, and we make people aware of things around and what are the risks and making sure that we stay on path. So I think CEO, they are going to be much more focused on taking bold step as CFO. I see the role as how do we make sure that we are treading the path, we are hitting the milestones that we need to hit we are holding people accountable on the targets that we have set. And just be be mindful. I think uh, if, if a CEO and CFO are, are, are at 
the loggerhead all the time, that's not the right place. And if they agree all the times, that's absolutely not the right place. You need to be able to challenge each other. That is a beautiful place to finish, Yato. I think is a, <laughs> that, that could be a very nice opening chapter of a book one day, that's for sure. I think that uh, that balance is such a crucial one, and I couldn't agree more. It's about being able to be uh, get on, but it's also about the ability to challenge. And I think you, the way you described that there was a, was a beautiful thing. So thank you so much for sharing. And, and thanks for coming on and sharing your journey and leadership learns with us today. I'm sure there's lots that will resonate with the listeners and like we, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Thanks again, Atul, for coming on. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for having me.